Thanks for joining us today on Mormon Land, where we explore news in and about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm Managing Editor Dave Noyce. I oversee the Salt Lake Tribune's faith coverage. I'm joined today by our water and land use reporter, Leah Larson. Hello, Leah. Hey, Dave. Glad to have you here. Remind our, we remind our listeners about another way to support Mormon Land. Just go to patreon.com, where with a small donation, you can access transcripts to our podcasts, our complete newsletter, and all of our exclusive religion coverage. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Mormon Land. Now for today's show. In the wake of drought, climate change, and primarily human-caused incursions, the Salt Lake Valley's namesake ecological landmark, the Great Salt Lake, is dying, shriveling up before our very eyes. Experts warn, in fact, that this shrinking body of water could vanish within five years, leaving behind an exposed lake bed and a source of toxic dust storms that could make this place, this place the Brigham Young reportedly declared the right place to become Mormonism's new home, uninhabitable. So the need to save the lake is obvious, and the stakes are huge, not only for Salt Lakers and Utahns, but also for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The faith's world headquarters is here, its history is here, its strength both in membership and, frankly, money is here, its iconic Salt Lake Temple and global offices are here, Thankfully, it's not too late to preserve the lake, but it will take a conservative, concerted and costly effort, and the Utah-based church and its members must play a vital role. Here to discuss the lake's precarious present and what Latter-day Saints and their church could do to help to secure its future is Ben Abbott, professor of ecology at Brigham Young University. Dr. Abbott, welcome. Thank you so much, Dave. Glad to have you here. So for our listeners who may be unaware of the Great Salt Lake's plight, Maybe you could briefly sketch out why it is disappearing. Yeah, the uh, this is an area of a lot of controversy, controversy and confusion. Right, figuring out why is this happening now? Why is it getting worse? The number one driver of the decline of Great Salt Lake is outdoor irrigation. That's mainly agricultural irrigation, growing alfalfa, hay, and some of the other crops, um, and then secondarily urban water use. So lawns and uh, consumptive water use there. Now there are other contributors as well. Water is actually taken from the lake for mineral extraction. And then we have a climate change component uh, where the temperatures are getting warmer and that's increasing the rate of evaporation from the lake. But there's a really, we're not alone in this problem. If you look around the world, uh, saline lakes like this are declining globally. And the, it's a consistent pattern of unsustainable irrigated agriculture as the, the primary driver. So Ben, you were the lead author of that emergency briefing that was released last month and made waves, uh, kind of got national headlines. And it spells out what's at stake if the lake continues to shrivel. So I'm wondering what has the response been and did you get any pushback or feedback from BYU leadership given that it's a church owned university? Yeah, the, uh, um, Starting with your last question, thankfully there were, there was no pushback. There was a lot of support, and I thought it was really interesting how um, researchers and students from across the university, right? We had College of Engineering, College of Life Sciences, uh, College of Physical Mathematical Sciences, all working together on this. Economics professors as well, uh, because this isn't the kind of problem that you just solve with hydrology, right? It's the, it's the human behaviors and our cultural behaviors that, that depend on this. So there, um, more broadly, there definitely has been, um, pushback and questions. 
I, I really appreciate that, right? That's the raw material of science where you say, here's my interpretation of the observations that we have. Somebody else questions you and asks, hey, how did you get those numbers? There've been lots of really productive conversations since the report came out last month um, that, I'm, that I'm really grateful for. I'm under no <laughs> illusions that any single report is going to solve these issues, right? In fact, I've often uh, joked, if we could take all the ink that's been spilt, <laughs> written about Great Salt Lake and turn it into water, we might be halfway <laughs> back to a healthy yeah. level. Okay. <laughs> um, so we, we need to transition from r- writing and talking to, to action really fast, because this was mentioned in the intro. We don't have decades to solve this problem. We're right up against the wire. And the, the, the language that we used is the Great Salt Lake is not headed for collapse. It is collapsing. We're seeing the ecological, the air pollution, the in, industrial and economic impacts of losing this ecosystem already. Yeah. And the brine flies are disappeared. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the emergency briefings recommendations was to set a target elevation for the Great Salt Lake and a state senator attempted to do just that last week, but it was rejected. Um, how do you feel about that? Do you think state leaders aren't on board or what do you, what, why do you think that happened? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be really frank. Um, there've been some things that have been really encouraging about the state's response. Um, particular, particularly, uh, governor Cox's comments early on in the state of the state. And before that really clear language, about we're going to have unprecedented emergency measures. You're going to see actions that we have not seen before with water releases and um, paying farmers to not grow crops this this year so we can get water to the lake. Uh, so far on, on the legislative side, I've been kind of at a loss as far as what's going on. We had Water Week last week and ended up with, so far, not very substantial movement forward. Uh, I'm hopeful. So tomorrow, actually, I know that won't be tomorrow when this goes, but February 8th, the the Great Salt Lake strike team is going to be releasing their recommendations. So maybe some of these more substantive legislative moves are going to happen later in the session. And um, and so I don't at all want to say, ah, I can't believe that they haven't done anything yet. There's still is plenty of time in the session. But I was hoping we'd have a, bet, a stronger start. Are they waiting for some money issues to be resolved too? You know what I mean? So they need their revenue projections and things like that so that they know how much money they actually have to spend on different things. Yes. I I mean, each individual bill will get a budgetary note that says how much it costs. Some of those have come in. Like there's another proposal that I think is really innovative and cool saying, let's take money that's earmarked now for these kind of zombie water infrastructure projects like the Bear River pipe, uh, the Bear River development and the Lake Powell pipeline. And let's use that for water conservation. That's the kind of totally common sense tax neutral mm-hmm. action that really could help. Um, that, that you don't need a, any increase in budget to do that. But um, the governor has released his budget. There's always the process of actually making that law that happens on the legislative side. So yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm hopeful, but it's, I, I wake up some mornings and just think the clock is ticking. Mm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the, the reason why we wrote this report was um, in, in November, we attended this, the Salt Lake Watershed Symposium. And we attend that every year. It's a local, really encouraging management, research, um, public, free symposium. And we scientists are extremely conservative. 
right? Like, in fact, if you, there have been whole analyses showing we tend to underestimate how bad things are because we don't want to ever be on the alarmist side of these things. And then we get to write stories 10 years later, say they even underreported. That's right. right. <laughs> yeah. But that happens frequently. It happens it frequently. Yes. It, it's uh, despite the criticisms to the contrary, mm-hmm. that's what's going on with climate change. Mm-hmm. And if you look at modeled projections, they have underestimated the rate and severity of, of climate change. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Despite that bias towards being really conservative at this symposium, presentation after presentation was was dire and blunt mm. saying it's, it's not a matter of years. It's a matter of months before we begin seeing these ecological thresholds that are crossed. The lake bed already two thirds of the lake bed is exposed. The longer that stays exposed, the more serious a source of toxic dust it becomes. We're losing the lake effect snow. I mean. So that was a punch to the gut. And we really did reoriented our research program to assemble this team and then prepare this report on short notice, because that was different than the, the dialogue that was happening in many of these policy circles where it was common to say, you know, it took us 40 years to get here. It'll take us 40 years to get out. And it's a marathon, not a sprint. Well, my response to that is we need a long sprint and then a marathon, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're right up against the wall right now. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to say, oh yeah, let's just gradually fix this. We're going to be suffering some pretty serious consequences. This is of course Mormon land. So let's, let's look at a little bit of the, the church issues. The, the cause of saving the lake can easily tuck into the church's environmental and yeah. conservation uh, focus and the Edenic command to care for the earth. Yeah. You mentioned you'd like to see the church go, quote, big on this issue in our story over the weekend. So what would you like to see the church do? You know, um, they're, they're, what we mean by the church is interesting, and you know this more than anybody else, right? There's the institutional church, the right. administration and leadership. There's the broader, the broader um, active membership of the church. And then nothing in Utah is without influence of church culture at some level, whether you're a member of the church or not, or any official relationship. Um, but starting at that central level of like, what could the institutional church do? The church of course is a landholder and a holder of water rights. And the way that they manage their properties is a signal for people throughout the great salt Lake watershed of how serious this issue is. Mm-hmm. I was in a conversation with somebody from the central Utah water conservancy district the other day. And they, they mentioned, we hear from members and non-members of the church who say, when I see that the church's lawn is green, that signals to me that this isn't, it's not, is the drought over? You know, it's not really that serious an issue. And I don't think that's something that the church has intentionally done. It's got all these contractors that are running the buildings, mm-hmm. but improving, um, uh, the training and priorities of those contractors who are maintaining church properties really quickly could reduce water consumption directly. Probably more importantly, give this signal to the whole community. We are all in on this, right? This is our home. We have a moral responsibility to do, to do this because of our doctrine. Also simply as good citizens, we've got to live within our means, right? Mm-hmm. There's kind of nothing more pioneer principles central to, to our practice than living within our means. What about Financial resources, you know, the church touts the water projects yeah. it does across the globe. Well, we, there's a water project that needs to happen here, and yeah. especially conservation. The church has resources, financial I, resources to I, help. I think that that is such an interesting opportunity, but both on the financial side and the expertise of the membership. Right. Mm-hmm. There, there are some of the world's best water managers and researchers who are members of the church and are here because they, they study this. And so can we harness some of that? 
you know, uh, I have a, some of our neighbors just came back from a service mission in Croatia and they were working on improving agricultural practices and, and, uh, and the kinds of things that we need here, because there's a lot of desire to do what's right, including in the agricultural community in urban planning community. Uh, but there's also a lot of, a lot of fear. You know, if I conserve water, is, is that going to be taken away? And the, the church, I think, is uniquely placed to, um, to address some of those issues. Because as a message comes from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints saying, this is really a, a priority for us, that's going to alleviate a lot of that anxiety, suspicion, and fear from the farmers who, who are members of the church. Mm-hmm. You touched a little bit on this, but the church's presiding bishop, uh, Gerald Kotze, has urged Latter-day Saints in the past conference, I believe in October, to quote, use the bountiful resources of the earth more reverently and prudently. So what could individual members do? That was a shout out to individual members do to help the Great Salt Lake. Yeah. Um, First of all, that, that talk I think is, is so important. And uh, I was talking with a, a researcher who is not a member of of my faith, and and she brought this up the other day and said, "Wow, how cool is that to have before this really crucial year clear guidance like of of what we need to be doing." Um, it can it can feel overwhelming and feel like this is such a huge problem. My contribution doesn't matter. And that also is totally contrary to to our doctrine, right? Where we believe in personal responsibility. And even if you can't solve the problem on your own, you are responsible for the way that you use resources, for the way that you um, treat other people. And it's within our power. If you own, uh, if we just look at the typical water consumption, over 90% of the consumptive water use is outdoor water use. So we're not talking about not brushing your teeth or not taking a shower as much as I'd like for that to be the case. I hate taking, <laughs> my wife will tell you otherwise, um, but the, uh, this is about our landscaping. And so uh, we had an interesting uh, experience where last year our, our sprinkler system sprung a leak and we were thinking, oh man, this is going to be difficult to fix. And my wife and I talked this over and we decided, Hey, we'll just turn it off. Mm -hmm. We won't, we won't fix it. We'll allow our lawn to the technical term is to senesce or to go into dormancy. And then we can decide next year or the year after what we're going to do with it landscaping wise. So not to uh, uh, put myself up on a pedestal, but that kind of accidental choice that we made reduced our consumptive water use by 90%. Mm. Yeah. And so with, it is within our power to make sm- simple changes uh, to do this. Now, the other really big um, impactful thing you can do is change your diet. Um, and this is, this is a, an aspect we, we eat much more water than we drink. Uh, right. We all drink. If we're doing what, what Oprah says, if we're drinking three liters a day or however much it is now. Um, that's a small amount compared to the water that it took to raise the, the food that we're eating. And if you look at this issue with Great Salt Lake, it's actually driven by not food for people, but feed for agriculture. And so making a choice to reduce the amount of meat and dairy that you eat is another way you can re- that you can decrease by 80% your food water footprint while still, ha- in fact, having better health if you look at the health outcomes in the U.S. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, and I'll just jump ahead to this. Uh, the word of wisdom. Yeah. Health code, which encourages to eat meat sparingly, right? You know, it's... It, 
I invite everybody who's listening, go back and read section 89 of the doctrine and covenants, because this happens to me all the time. There's what I think scripture says. Oh yeah. And then there's what it actually says when I open my heart uh, and mind to it. And if you read that, that um, section, it's, it's very clear. It's not only to eat meat sparingly. It, the Lord says in the first person, it is pleasing unto me that you shall not eat meat except for mm-hmm. in times of famine, famine. and excess hun- hunger. Mm-hmm. So it's, I mean, the, the, the message there is clear. We're not forbidding it. And if you're in a, a dire situation where there's no other option, please <laughs> survive and eat what you must. But it's, it's really t- prophetic and a testimony to me that this was given, you know, 150 years ago in a place where there was bountiful water and land, right? There was no shortage of those resources. And yet this was preparing in my interpretation, the saints for the new place that they were going to live. And were we to follow that, um, that guidance, we would not be in this situation. I mean, the great salt lake would immediately begin refilling. It, It would give us exactly the amount of water we needed to get back up to that sustainable level. Yeah. So it's clear as we talk about the Great Salt Lake, um, the elephant in the room is alfalfa. Yeah. That's the market for farmers, for better or for worse. Um, but all the farmers I've talked to um, are reluctant to participate in water leasing and banking programs, which state leaders are kind of identifying as like the big solution yeah. to get water to the Great Salt Lake. So what can the church do to help broker agreements on this front or get these farmers on board? Yeah. You know, the, um, I ask myself this question a lot. What can the institutional church do? What can we members of the church do to increase, um, uh, increase trust? Cause, uh, and I saw an, an int- really interesting interchange th- that you had Leah on, on Twitter the other day where you were, you're really comforting somebody who is raging against alfalfa. If I'm remembering <laughs> right, you know, and say, Hey, I can tell that this is, uh, you're feeling upset. Right? <laughs> and I, appre- I appreciated that because there is, there is a really strong human instinct to blame somebody else. Mm. And so if I, I, I don't grow alfalfa and so I'm going to say that that's the one thing that has to change. Right. I don't Yeah. But to. how many hamburgers do you eat? Yeah. <laughs> Bingo. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the, the, we need to do this in a way that doesn't push people away. The farmers are already feeling embattled. And if they dig their heels in and say, we're not going to do this very easily and legally, they could slow down this process. Um, this water banking idea is a real opportunity for farmers because it allows them even in a low water year to remain profitable because they can sell or lease their water rights for that year. So the, the, on paper, it looks really good and it has been implemented in other places and been super effective, but perception is everything. And so the, if these farmers don't believe that the program is going to work, they don't think that the water, that they're going to get the water back in a future year, it could, could stop. And so I think that all of us who have family members, I come from an agricultural background in San Pete County, just outside of the watershed. Um, the, I, I think that it's, uh, again, you're, you're, you're seeing my, my personal beliefs, but kind of divine providence that our governor and the director of the Department of Natural Resources are alfalfa farmers. You know, they mm-hmm. come from that background. They can speak with more credibility. But then um, I think that the institutional church could really be influential here as well. Imagine if they sent out service missionaries throughout the Great Salt Lake watershed. 
Um, and it, they were simply informing farmers about the programs that exist and, and the actual details, right? They need to have that, that training. Uh, likewise, what if uh, legal resources were made available to farmers? Because that's another I don't know if you've heard this in, in your conversations, but okay. Yeah. I'd love to, for my water to get to great salt Lake, but I don't know how I'm going to get it back. I don't know how it's going to be shepherded through the watershed, these complex legal issues that need to be resolved. And um, so service missionaries, there's an, another idea that uh, came up from a church member back East, um, Mary Kay, who, who is on the board of Latter-day Saint Earth Stewardship. She had this awesome idea. What about ward or stake water conservation specialists? Where, you know, the same way that currently you can get free training from the LDS church on um, finding a job, you know, kind of professional development and uh, food storage and th these prudent living self-reliance self kind of things that you hear. This yes. falls right into that, right? It would just, there wouldn't even need to be a new program. Let's just develop the curriculum, um, roll that out. I think that these are really big opportunities. Uh, they're going to solve some of the short-term issues that we're facing here, but they're, they're also going to be more and more important worldwide. Um, Last week, I, uh, Sharon Eubank spoke at, at BYU talking about the church's global humanitarian The head of humanitarian efforts. services for the yeah, church. Yes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And, and th they're really focused on getting the educational and technical resources to these communities to become self-sufficient. Uh, and this is based on really good humanitarian research and, and practices and our principles, right, of helping one another as children of God. Um, let, let, let's do that here. Like so th we have another bias of seeing the problem in other people and we don't, we see the, the might in our brother's eye and not mm. the moat or the beam in our, in our mm. own. And so mm. let's, let's look here. What are, what are we doing wrong? What, what areas do we uh, need to improve? Mm -hmm. And a, a local kind of arrangement like that also could help with the problem we have. It's local lay leadership. Yeah. So, you know, they might be able to, Make them aware that, hey, our, we shouldn't be watering the lawn the way we are. That's you right. Know, out, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or just well, raise that awareness at the local level. It, and it'll come across so much better, right? It's it's somebody that you know from your neighborhood who right. may, had some background. Now they've been given this responsibility in the church mm -hmm. to to help people reduce water consumption rather than somebody from out of town coming in and telling you what you need to do, right? I'm going to throw another doctrine of covenant scripture at you that I know some members point to. Yeah. Um, as an argument against conservation, yeah. DNC one Oh four seventeen, the earth is full and there is enough and to spare. Yeah. What's your answer to, to that? So you, you should have, I'm sure you've heard it before oh, yeah. from people. And, so. and, and, and I actually think section one Oh four is one of the most important environmental stewardship d doctrines in, in any Christian church. Um, and I don't say that lightly. It's, it's a really clear um, reassurance from the Lord that if we act according to his laws, that there is enough and to spare. And, and, and we should point out, right, that, that that's contrary to some ecological predictions that we had, you know, before the, we call it the green revolution, where improvements in crop type uh, irrigation and um, fertilizer came about. Mm -hmm. We really were worried that there was not enough resources on earth to feed humankind, even when our population is half of what it was. So this, the, the part of the scripture that you cited is the reassuring part. Um, but there, there are conditions, right? All of God's promises on, in, in our doctrinal view are conditional. And so this idea of there's enough and to spare, if ye do it in my way, 
And then the Lord says, and behold, this is my way to uh, um, lift up the poor and bring down the rich. And so it's an idea of sharing the resources that we have. If we use them to bless and provide the needs of humankind, then this is really clear. And this has now been confirmed by ecological science. There is enough and to spare. Even if you're looking at issues like climate change, it's not caused by too many people. It's caused by a few people consuming too much. And, uh, and so the, the, I, I really, I, we should use that section as a guide as we think about, look, I will have an environmental footprint, right? The things, one of our ecological laws is there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Mm-hmm. So th- th- I'm going to have an impact on the environment. Am I using those resources that I'm consuming in a way that, that blesses those around me in accordance with God's laws? So in our story that we published over the weekend, we attempted to figure out how much water the church and its many real estate arms um, controls in the Great Salt Lake Basin. And the number we came up with was 75,000 acre feet plus 600 cubic feet per second. And I know when you throw out numbers like that, it kind of makes people's eyes glaze over. (laughs) But can you help listeners um, wrap their heads around how much water that is? Is it enough to help the lake? Yeah. So we, we estimated in our report that the lake needs about a million acre feet more per year than it's getting now. And so let's round up, right? Cause that 75, I, I read that article, that 75,000 acre feet is certainly not comprehensive. So let's round right. it up to a hundred thousand acre feet. That would mean if the church gave all of its water rights to the lake, that we'd be about 10% of the way there. Um, and that's not negligible, right? That's a, that's a big contribution. But again, I think it emphasizes that we need some clear messaging here. And then we also need leading by example saying, okay, we're going to give all that we can while still maintaining the the properties that we have. We're going to give all that we can back to the lake because of this really acute societal need that's there. Um, But we also can't say, okay, I don't need to worry about my consumption because the LDS church is just being so wasteful. And and if they change their procedures, this would be not not an issue. Hmm. Yeah. On that note, um, you know, we talked about these news releases that the church issued um, about highlighting its efforts to reduce water consumption and all the things it's doing. But as we walk around our own neighborhoods, we notice that some of these initiatives don't seem to be universally enforced. Some church properties let their lawns go brown last summer, like yeah. the church in my neighborhood, for example, but others stayed very green and lush. So what can the church do to improve its messaging and get more consistency? Yeah, I'm, I am not an expert in the in church government to know, you know, what who's in charge of what committee. But I do know that there are contractors that are overseeing, you know, kind of multiple buildings in a particular area. That's my why you might see some of this geographical variation. Um, the I, th- I think it'd be really interesting to to think about the stake level. And for those of you who aren't uh, members of the church, this is a m- multiple congregations in an area. That's it's a pretty big chunk of area. And um, if if we had briefings at the stake or area level, which is multiple stakes, that could get the information to the ecclesiastical leaders and then also those contractors who are actually maintaining the, the, the properties. Now, I don't know how feasible this idea is, but I'd wondered wouldn't it be amazing to kind of turn the stewardship of the buildings back to the members? Hmm. Cause it used hmm. to be just a few generations ago that you would raise in your own neighborhood, the money and hmm. help construct the chapel. So it was much more local, not a, not a, not a, a contractor. Um, I think that could be a really cool way to tap into our pioneer roots and get more involved in water conservation. If we all went to the church 
hold up the unused grass, you know, flip the strip there and, and then um, help plant some local vegetation that doesn't require irrigation. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, is it time to just, you know, let go of the idea of grass? Like maybe we should embrace our great basin desert landscape and do more native landscaping. Yeah. The uh, uh, turf grass is the, the largest irrigated crop in the United States. This is, this is lawns that we're talking about. Nobody's eating lawns, not contributing to food security. It's, it's decoration, right? And some of those lawns are, are what we call working lawns. They're being used actively for a soccer game or for enjoying. So th- th- some of that lawn can stay active, but I certainly think we need to reduce the amount of lawn. And I, I take a page, one, one of my closest colleagues, Brian Hopkins, world turf expert. He's brought by football teams all over the country to help them make their turf better. Um, and he has removed more than half of the lawn in his own house. Mm. He says, Hey, I love when my lawn is healthy and good, but he's used a variety that requires less um, water. And he said, I only want it where I'm going to use it. Cause otherwise it's just a, a weekend eating machine. Right. You see, you spend your time aerating the thing, fertilizing the thing, watering the thing. And then f- for all that work, you get the privilege of having to mow the thing. So yeah. we could have so much more time and en- enjoying the amazing creation around us. If we just took a, a cue from nature and, um, you know, section 88 of the doctrine covenants talks about how the, the earth abides a celestial law already. And I, I think sometimes we get caught in our mind in this millennial thinking where there's going to be a huge change in the future and completely different rules are going to apply. Well, we actually know, no, the way that the earth works now is the, it is according to God's laws as president Nelson taught a few, few semesters ago at BYU. Um, so let's take a, a, a page from nature where there are no wastes in, in, in a natural cycle. So if we transition to sagebrush, rabbit brush, some of the uh, native grasses, or even some of the um, non-native, there's their new ber- hybrid Bermuda grass varieties that require substantially less water mm. that we could use. There are all kinds of ways we'd have less maintenance and just as beautiful or even more beautiful landscapes. Take some creative thinking. And like you said, Leah, getting out of this mindset of wall to wall green grass. The time for that certainly has passed. The same with temples and the lush landscapes that are there also. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think especially for, for temples, right? There are fewer temples, so it's easier Mm -hmm. to, to manage those properties. Um, and they have even more symbolic importance than a meeting house. And so, um, I don't know all the details, but I understand there have been changes in priorities for land outdoor landscaping. And that, that basically is a default now for all new temples Mm. that it is local scaped, whether that's in Mexico, Hawaii, or here, it's going to look totally different, but integrating the local vegetation. And for anyone who's visited uh, an LDS temple uh, before it's consecrated and you have the, the, the public tours, I think it's so beautiful to see how the local environment is depicted very carefully as part of this um, sacred ordinance that we go through, right? Mm-hmm. That, that is really important. Our connection with this location that was created by God for a purpose. It's not just another place, but it was intentionally created uh, to teach us something, to provide us with, with certain resources. And so rather than trying to change it and bend the environment to our whims and will, Let's learn from what's going on around us. Um, There's an adage from engineering that I think is really applicable here, which says the chief source, the chief cause of problems is solutions. The, The early water use was in the sustainable range. 
because it was really difficult to get water out of the rivers up onto the land. But in the, the mid-1900s, we had all of these federal and state subsidized projects, building mm-hmm. dams, canals, and pipelines. And this art this created an artificial surplus of water that then stimulated unsustainable demand of water. And so it's really interesting to me that if we respected the natural limits of the system, and again, uh, there are many small government people uh, in our state and in my church in particular, right? So let's actually recognize that need and and say, let's not um, live outside of our means and use Great Salt Lake like a line of credit. One last question, Ben, as we wrap up. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the Great Salt Lake's future and why? Um, you know, there are, there are hundreds of saline lakes that have been destroyed or compromised around the world on every continent, except for Antarctica. We have seen this, this story play out and, um, it has never ended well. What we call success is when the rate of decline slows or in some extreme cases where it stops, right? (laughs) And, and we have virtually no examples of, of a restoration of a saline lake system. And I say that not to depress listeners, but to emphasize how hard this is. Right? I mean, it, it, it's just difficult. We get stuck in legal and cultural patterns, and it's, it's really hard to turn that ship. So I, I, I don't want any, to be flippant at all about how heavy a lift this is. Like this is, wouldn't be monumental, but that also emphasizes how much of an opportunity this represents for the church, for our state, for our country, for our community, uh, with all of its diversity. Imagine if we were the first ones to demonstrate how we can solve this problem, that it's not just about what we've been doing all along, but, uh, but that we can look to the future and leave this area in a better place than, than we found it. That would be an amazing legacy. And I, I, I believe sometimes contrary to the, the short-term trends, right? Like the voting down of a resolution that was already totally watered down of we'd like someday to reach <laughs> this level. <laughs> think totally, um, but dis, despite those, those short-term setbacks, um, we're, we're responding to this in a way that's really encouraging. And if you, the, the, the most direct parallel is the Aral Sea um, in the former Soviet Union. And in that case, it was much larger than Great Salt Lake. Uh, that ecosystem has been destroyed in what has been often described as the single largest ecological disaster in human history. Mm. 95% loss of that ecosystem. Com- uh, complete collapse of all of the communities around the Aral Sea. So we're facing... A threat that is existential, you know, that, that threatens our way of life here. And I get phone calls and emails frequently of people asking, do I need to move away? Mm -hmm. Or just the other day, I'm worried about sending our children to go to university of Utah because they're going to be exposed for four years to the air pollution. And I said, well, yes, please don't send them to University of Utah. Send them to BYU. <laughs> but, if you, but if you have to, um, right, that, that is not the place we want to be. That's not the place we should be. We have the resources. We have the knowledge. We have the cultural cohesiveness that we need to solve this. Um, and so the, I am not yet at the faith level, but I, but I have an enduring hope. Um, and one of the things I'm most encouraged by is just, 
you're seeing people from all walks of life uh, step forward and take risks and expend resources and energy to solve this problem. That is, that's really, really encouraging to me. And so if we can just avoid tripping over ourselves and blaming each other and saying, Hey, because you're a member of that church, or if you have this or that type of identity, you can't participate in the process. If we can, if we can come together, I, I believe we can solve this. Well, the challenge has been tossed out. Dan Abbott, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Leah. Be well. Thanks to Leah Larson. Yeah, happy to be here. And encourage our listeners to read Leah's coverage about this issue, continuing coverage, and to our producer, Christopher Samuels. We remind our listeners that you can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by sub- subscribing to the Solid Tribune's free Mormonland newsletter. Just go to sltrip.com to sign up, and we'll talk again next time on Mormonland. <laughs>